These are memorial bracelets of all of my friends. Steve Deluzio and Tristan Southworth were killed in Afghanistan on the same day. And uh, Steve actually died in my arms. You probably can't tell by looking at him, but retired Staff Sergeant Wesley Black, 35 years old, is about to die himself. I could be dead tomorrow. I could live another six months. It, no one no one knows. It, it really all just depends on how my body responds to the oral chemotherapy and just how much more I can squeeze out of the out of the stone. Wes has terminal colon cancer. After surviving combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan with the Vermont National Guard, receiving a Purple Heart, it's smoldering trash from massive burn pits on U.S. military bases, sometimes acres in size, that will kill him. Soldiers tend to generate a lot of trash. Metals, plastics, electronics, medical waste, um, you know, uniforms, anything and everything that, that can be burned um, was thrown into these, you know, the, the trash dump and then coated in diesel fuel and lit on fire. In eastern Afghanistan, Black says the burn pit on the combat outpost where he served was located just 150 feet from the front gate. If you were the poor sucker standing gate guard when that, when that burn pit was lit and the wind was blowing it into the, into the main gate, I mean, you would be standing in the, in the smoke for upwards of 8 to 12 hours a day. Just breathing it in. Just breathing it in. Just one of at least 230 burn pits used in Iraq and Afghanistan. According to a recent survey by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, 86% of vets from the two wars report exposure to burn pits. Almost 9 in 10 of those think they have related symptoms. I thought I was on easy street. You know, I was, I was ready to chase my wife and my son around. He and his wife had just had a baby and bought a house. Wes was beginning a career as a firefighter in their quiet Vermont town. Now, after years of symptoms and a diagnosis from an outside oncologist that linked his cancer to burn pits, they're planning his funeral. My wife and I had to go to the funeral home and do the arrangements. As the post 9-11 wars come to an end in the coming months, burn pit exposure threatens to kill more veterans than combat did. to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special episode for you guys. My guest for this week's podcast is United States Senator of Florida, Marco Rubio. Uh, how's it going? Good. I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, I'm happy uh, that uh, we're doing this here. Um, so I'd like to get into your story just a little bit. Before politics, you know, your parents came to America in 56. Yep. So that's uh, just before Castro took power in Cuba. Um, and you grew up in Miami, right? I did. Actually, by a sheer coincidence that you asked this question. Uh, we're, we're taping this, if that's okay to say, on May 27th. Sure. Uh, my parents came on May 27th, 1956. Oh, no way. Yeah. So today is that, uh, I don't know, is that the... 
six, seventy, something anniversary since that date. It's, uh, so wow. it's pretty coincidental you ask, and you just reminded me of that right now as I'm as I'm thinking about that question. So yeah, they they um, you know, I was uh, I think your question was you know I was, my parents came from Cuba, nineteen fifty six. I was born in nineteen seventy one. So what happened is my parents had my brother when they were right after they got married, and then they came to America, and then my sister was born here in the 60s. And then they didn't have kids again until 1971 when you know, my dad was already in his 40s, my mom, my late 30s, early 40s. So it was, and then they had another, my, my, my younger sister right after that. So there was, there was like a 13-year gap between me and my older sister, and there's a 21-year gap between me and my oldest brother. Oh, wow. My brother, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so how was it, you know, growing up in Miami in those days? Well, it's interesting. I, I was born in Miami. We lived in Miami. My dad was a bartender on Miami Beach. That's what he primarily did. And then for a couple of years, he he managed an apartment building instead. And um, and it was okay, you know. But I think what happened was my dad by 1979 was struggling to find work because Miami Beach started taking a downturn, and it wasn't the same as before. And we had had a bunch of family that had moved over to Las Vegas. Um, Half my mom is one of seven sisters. So three of them had moved to Las Vegas. Four of them, including us, lived in Miami. And the ones, you know, Las Vegas at that time, you know, it's still today. But I mean, at that time, you could just there's a lot of service sector jobs in the hotel industry, and so we we moved over there. And I lived there. I tell people from '79 to '85, but basically from third grade through eighth grade, uh, we lived in Las Vegas, and then we moved okay. back to. Miami right before I started ninth grade. And uh, it was a unique experience, but it, I think it was good for us to live in a different part of the country for some time because, you know, when we came back, we, we, we had a little bit of a different maybe perspective, a different point of view on some things in terms of how, you know, the rest of the country is. At least we had exposure to something different. Right. Okay. So you've been a senator for 11 years, um, and there's you know, many problems that the U.S. Senate deals with all the time. Um, you have a few issues that you're passionate about. Uh, exposure by the military to burn pits is one of them. Um, how did this become an issue that uh, you decided is something important and, and you want to figure out, you know, how you can deal with it? Well, I, I think uh, in Florida, we are a state that has a lot of veterans. And we have a lot of veterans because a lot of people in the you know, they serve here. we got a lot of military installations. And so at the end of their careers, when they retire, a lot of people in the military decide, you know, Florida's where we're going to stay. And so our office, I would say that, you know, I say immigration is number one issue, but I count into that, you know, calling my office for constituent service, number one issue. I count people that are saying, you know, my passport, the very common thing, you know, somebody has a trip, they leave the next day, uh, they forgot their passports expired, and so they, we need to scramble and help them out to see if we can get them an emergency passport meeting. So other than immigration, the number one issue in our office is veterans dealing with the VA. And we start seeing an uptick in people that are saying, you know, I was deployed in, the, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and now I'm back. I'm very young, 39 or 40, sometimes as young as 31, 32, 33, and I'm facing a bunch of health issues that are not normal for someone my age. And you start connecting the dots on it, and it's a lot of people that were exposed to these toxic burn pits, basically. You know, stuff you're not allowed to do in the U.S. You take refuse and garbage, and including chemicals and anything else, and you just set them on fire. And that gets in the air. You're breathing it in. And we have this uptick. And so what happens is you can't prove. The VA says, well, you have to prove that that cancer in your brain 
is because of those burn pits. Well, that's a nearly impossible thing to prove. And even if you could, by the time you did, it's too late. So in many cases, these are people that are fighting for the VA with the VA to get coverage. And, and in some very sad cases, what you're actually talking about is people that are already terminal, they're end of life. And what their family is really fighting for at this point is just some help caring for their loved one so they could die in dignity as opposed to spending all your time sort of navigating the system. And, and so unless we basically create the presumption that anyone who served for more than 30 days in one of these areas and had, has these very rare conditions uh, is because of burn pits, that causal link will never be made. And we have a lot of people out there suffering as a result of it. So I'm hopeful we can get that done. Yeah, it's, um, I've known a couple of guys uh, who have passed away from cancer at a young age. Um, uh, one, a, a guy I had on uh, two years ago, um, his name is Ronald Schur, and he was a, a medic with 3rd Special Forces Group, and he was awarded the Medal of Honor. Um, and he died at 41 from lung cancer. Uh, he was working after he got out of the army. He went to join the Secret Service, and he was working there until he passed away. Um, and it's there's just so many people who have died at a young age, or, you know, forty, mid forties, even mid thirties, uh, from cancer. And like you said, it's uh, the rate that these guys, these men and women, are, are having these issues is way higher than the the normal uh rate for civilians um and so part of the issue is the VA is has a, an impossible you know stipulation like you have to prove you know how can you prove this was well that's impossible um but you've done some work uh on bills dealing with the VA um one of them is called the VA Accountability and Whistleblower Protection Act uh, in May 2017. Uh, and this was allowing the secretary to dismiss bad employees and ensure appropriate due process protections for whistleblowers. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we've actually done it uh, two separate versions of that because we had to improve on the first one. So basically what we were finding is if you were a mid-level executive, like the person in charge at a, say, VA clinic somewhere in a community, and you're you're you know, your appointment times, your wait times are substantially longer than anywhere else. And they look at your record and they look at what you're doing and say, look, you're just not performing. You know, this person's just not doing a good job. They can't fire this person. They couldn't at that time. And so it was nearly impossible to fire them. And so what we were able to do is pass a bill that, that, um, that allowed that to happen. And then obviously, the, and that was at the senior levels on the first bill. One of the first bills that President Trump signed was my second bill. And that was one that allowed him to go even lo lower down the chains to mid-level managers that weren't doing a good job. Look, I think most of the people that work at the VA do a good job, and 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 they they want to do a good job. I don't think it's you know to the extent there are resource limitations or that for that explains a lot of it in that case. But there are some people like there are some people everywhere that are just not doing a good job, and if you don't have an ability to hold them accountable to remove them and replace them. They're, you're not going to have improved performance. It's as simple as that. And so the ability to do that, it doesn't solve every problem. It's not a panacea. You know, it doesn't solve everything. I'm not saying, oh, we still have issues with the VA. But I think those were important measures that we got passed, not once, but twice. And, uh, and, I, and I do think in some areas you've begun to see results. You've started to see clinic clinics, for example, and the VA facilities that, um, that 
were long identified with poor patient outcomes, long waits, bad customer service that suddenly have turned around because the person in charge of it now is just better than the person that was there before, but you know, couldn't be moved and couldn't be fired. So uh, I'm hopeful that trend will continue. And, and obviously we have a bunch of other challenges too. The burn pit legislation is one that I think we're going to be able to get past here. Hopefully the week that we get back from our Memorial Day recess, we can pass that bill. And what that'll do is it'll say, if you've got this, con- uh, you know, a rare, it's a list of conditions, upper respiratory cancers, things like that. And you were and you served in, in a in an area with burn pits where um, there's a presumption it was because of the burn pits, and you're going to qualify for for VA coverage. And and what's the name of that? Well, that's the burn pit legislation. That's the burn pit bill that everyone's talking about. Okay. And I think the one we're going to get to. I mean, the the right after, you know, we're taking up the House version of it, which I think our version of it is better. So hopefully we'll be able to substitute it with ours and send it back to them. But I don't remember exactly how the House. Uh, name they gave the bill, but everyone calls it the burn pit bill, burn pit legislation, and it's coming up, and um, and that's going to be very important because uh, we're we're hopeful we can get a result on that and get a get a bill passed so that people that are out there you know struggling with this right now will have the ability to um, you know get the care that they need. Yeah, it's a serious issue. Um... Uh, I'm not sure. Are you familiar with an organization called Hunter 7 Foundation? Which one? I'm sorry. It's called Hunter 7 Foundation. I, I'm not. I don't think I am. Oh, so they're a, a unique organization. It's um, it's veteran founded. Uh, it's a 501c3 nonprofit, uh, and they specialize in medical research and education uh, on post 9-11 veterans. Uh, and they have... Uh, I think 80% of their the members of the organization are advanced care medical practitioners, um, and they deal with this issue, uh, doing research and, and doing all these things and helping getting veterans diagnosed, um, and it's, it's really a fantastic organization. Um, you know, there may be somebody who would uh, maybe have some interest in uh, uh, working with you in some way, I'm not sure, but... Um, yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. I think we, our staff in our office, have met with them before. I think this is the, um, I think this is a group that's always it's a it's a group that's pushing also to they want you know research. They're, I believe the one time we met with them was they were looking for money to research uh, uh, the expo you know the exposure that veterans had in that. So it's very to, to whatever substances or chemicals or what have you during the, in the post nine eleven period. And I think they have a lot of not just veterans, but they have a lot of like healthcare professionals involved in the foundation. Yeah. So yeah. So that's starting to ring a bell. I think I know who you're, the group you're talking about because um, um, I, I remember we had some conversation, and I, and I believe they're supportive of our efforts on this. Although I don't think they get involved directly in some bill. So I think it was a general. They want more research done into the health conditions overall that veterans that, are, that have been deployed since 9/11 are, are facing. Yeah, they are a fantastic organization. Um, I was speaking to uh, one of them prior to the podcast, um, and she said she was a fan of you, and she, you know she had a copy of your book and things like that. So, um, yeah, I, I do believe they're tracking uh, what you have going on with with uh, the burn pit related issues. Um, so, there's something else I'd like to talk to you about. Um, it's an issue that is uh, it's big all over the world, and 
in America and in Florida in particular as well. Um, and that's uh, human trafficking. So this is another issue that you are uh, passionate about. Can we talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how, how it was brought to your attention and, and uh, maybe some of the things that you think about uh, the issue? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, it's one of those things that my wife actually took a great interest in and mm. I got elected. And, and so we started to learn more about it and realize the scope and breadth of it. There's a lot of aspects to it. Um, there's uh, there's forced labor, you know, where people are basically taken captive and forced to work. And, and that actually happens even here in the United States. Um, you see it um, when someone's brought to this country illegally by one of these cartels. In many cases, they're they're forced to work and they're told you got to pay off the debt um, for bringing you. And um, and often because they're undocumented, they don't have documents. You know, they're here illegally. They're not going to go to the police department and, and they're not going to tell anybody what's facing that. So we've had we've, we've seen that happen. Um, the, the other, uh, of course, is the one that people talk a lot about, and that's the sex trafficking trade. And, and oftentimes that involves you know young women uh, who are, uh, you know, run away from home and somehow fall into the web of one of these people who then gets them addicted to drugs and, and really hooks them into a very dangerous life spiral and, and a very destructive one that's very difficult to escape from. And, and oftentimes it's, it's not just addicted to drugs, it's a psychological level of control where the victim starts to feel like they're helpless and, and like they're worthless and no one's going to care. And we've had some challenges there. And one of the struggling that we've had with that issue is, um, you know, in many jurisdictions, the the only way. So if, if if someone busts up a human sex trafficking ring, they're largely yeah they're going to arrest a client, but in many cases they're going to arrest a worker, be it at one of these you know massage parlor operations or whatever, they're going to arrest a worker and they're going to treat them like a criminal. So in many cases, what will happen is that because they're being treated like criminals, um, it's very difficult to get them to cooperate against the the people uh, who put them in that place in, in the first place. So. You know, trying to get that mindset shifted around, trying to protect people that are victims of that so that they'll come forward has been a big part of it. And then um, and then obviously the 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 so the, the forced labor commercial aspect of it is actually the the majority in terms of the number. But obviously the, the, the sex trafficking component of it is one that angers a lot of people. It's a global phenomenon, but we're not immune to it here in America. And even in Florida, we know that there are eras, there are times during the year when we have certain big events from Super Bowl to whatever, where there's a huge uptick in it. And so one of the things that's really been helpful and it's at the local and state level is uh, equipping people on the front lines, airport workers, airport security, you know, uh, hotel workers and so forth about the signs of trafficking. You can certain there are certain telltale signs of when someone's being trafficked. And, and those are the kinds of things we're trying to help people identify. And there's been a lot of work done at the local level and state level. It's a big priority, for example, for the attorney general of Florida, Ashley Moody, who's, who's really made this one of her issues. And and my wife serves on the statewide board to take on human trafficking here in Florida that are constantly looking for things they can do. Yeah, it's, um, it's a serious problem. And um, uh, post 9-11, uh, there are veterans who served in combat and, and different special operations units who are and people who worked at the CIA and things like that who get out of government service and now have organizations that uh, go after human traffickers and and they specialize in specific 
uh, kinds. Like I know people who run organizations that go after sex trafficking or things like that. Um, so uh, a few years ago, you know, with the whole thing that happened with Jeffrey Epstein, uh, that brought a lot of attention. There was, you know, Netflix documentary and, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who was a, um, a senior level special operations guy who since getting out, he's done nothing but, uh, sort of go after people who, uh, traffic, uh, specifically kids, uh, for sex in the United States. And, um, you know, we were talking about the Epstein thing and what he was saying was that, yes, you know, that's a, that's an issue, uh, to have these rich, powerful, influential people uh, do this kind of thing and and being associated to Epstein. But what he was saying was, what he felt was a bigger issue was uh, this kind of thing happening at a lower level um, with sort of pimps and and that kind of thing. And and he was saying it, it happens more at that level versus, you know, these super rich people who are taking advantage of young girls or, or what have you. Yeah. So, I mean, the Epstein thing is a unique thing because the guy had a lot of money and he was, uh, you know, really a sort of a demented sociopath, but he had the ability to use that money to, to, to target, right? He, he, he had ability to target. He knew, or he had established the ability to target young girls that he thought would be susceptible to this and then sort of, you know, trick them into becoming part of this and then trapping them in that web. And he had a lot of enablers. And frankly, I think he had a lot of protection because he, he, you know, there's still a lot of questions about why did local law enforcement in some cases not be more aggressive about this and things of that nature. And, and it was, uh, it, it, it also, I think points to the difficulty of putting some of these people away because in his particular case, initially it was very difficult to get the victims to testify, to actually cooperate. And, and that's not um, we see that in non Epstein trafficking cases, right? You're trying to convince, for example, in some instance, a young woman that this guy who they think is her boyfriend or she thinks is her friend or she thinks is someone who's helping her and cares for her, that this guy is actually taking advantage of him. And initially, that's a very, very hard thing to do. Um, it's 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 a very the psychology of it is that they've been so battered psychologically that they don't they don't see their captor as 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 a pimp or as someone who's using them. So it takes some time to get them. To, but but if they don't cooperate, you know, and if you can't get their cooperation, their testimony, and their evidence, then you can't convict this person in a court of law. And I think Epstein benefited from that as well. And he had you know could afford the best lawyers in the world to represent him and so forth. Now what you point to is exactly right, and that is that, that's Epstein. But that was his own personal collection, and you know, and it's a horrifying way to describe it. But that's how he viewed it. And um, and his own effort for himself and, and I guess for some circle of friends. I mean, that's just an unbelievable story. But on a broader scale, you have people that are dedicated to this, right? They do this on a mass scale. They go around and target dozens of young girls, sort of trap them into this lifestyle and then sort of send them out to work and collect money. And, and unfortunately, you know, South Florida, like Miami Beach, as an example, is a place that we know is one of the hot spots during the season where you have a lot of tourists coming into town from around the world for a variety of events. And these services are out there and they become available. And so we've, you know, we spent years, you know, Senator Portman of Ohio has been a real leader on that, going after Backpage.com, you know, the company that yeah. owned that. Because they were putting ads in their online and in their paper that was published. They would just put up ads 
advertising certain services. And so there's been, you know, but that this continues to be a pervasive problem. And it's a, it's a horrifying one. And frankly, a lot of people that you look at, these young women get trapped in this, come from all kinds of backgrounds. They come from broken homes, yes, but they also come from, you know, good, solid families who, for whatever reason, they, they sort of find themselves in a vulnerable situation. And then it takes off in this direction. Yeah, I actually know a woman from California um, who was uh, kidnapped by traffickers, like thrown into a van in the middle of the day. It was pretty crazy. But um, she managed to escape, I think, before she kind of got lost in that world. And, um, uh, you know, I've, I've connected her with uh, different folks who... Uh, work in organizations that counter sex trafficking. Um, I'm not sure if this is still around, but a couple of years ago, I know it was, it was called the Hero Program, and they would recruit um, members of the special operations community as they were retiring from the military. And they would look for um, people who produce child pornography and, and things like that. And... Um, and it, it's really crazy. Uh, another friend of mine who uh, works in this field, um, they spent time on the dark web tracking uh, organizations that are trafficking uh, kids from outside the United States or inside the United States. And um, he spoke about the the number, and it was it was a high number. I forget the exact number, but but what he said that was kind of, of chilling was that they're only tracking people who are communicating in English. Um, they're seeing a bunch of Russian or, yeah. you know, Asian and uh, and they're not even tracking any of that. So it's really uh, a huge problem. Um, yeah, so anywhere where you have, you know, mass disruption... So you talk about Ukraine right now for a moment. Ukraine has, what, four, four and a half million, either maybe at this number is higher now, displaced people. The thing is, imagine if there's a young lady somewhere in Ukraine. Her family's been displaced. She's on her own in a refugee camp somewhere. These traffickers, they view that as an opportunity. There's going to be young women. And, and I, I say young women, but it's also there's a market for young boys. And yeah. They're gonna. They're alone and they're vulnerable, and we're gonna go approach them, and we're gonna be friendly and nice. I mean, these people don't come with a sign around their neck saying, "I'm a trafficker. I'd like to hire you." They pose as, you know, modeling agents. They pose as, you know, wealthy business people that are just trying to be nice and help you out in your times of difficulty. And before you know it, you've been trapped. You know, now they've got you. Maybe they hook you on drugs and you don't even know it. Maybe they batter you psychologically until you cooperate. Maybe maybe they make you, you think that they're your boyfriend and then they start lending you out to people for money. That's the way they approach some of these things. And it's sick. But it but these tragedies in terms of things happening around the world that create instability are also for these trafficking networks. They view it as a prime opportunity. And there's then there's a the whole sex tourism situation. You know, there are plenty of Americans. Uh, who travel to a place like Costa Rica, frankly, who go to places like Cuba, because they believe that that is a place, and they know that that is a place where there is a market where they can find underage girls and 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 engage in this sort of behavior. And, um, and um, you know, that, that of course, is a, if an American does it, that's a federal crime. They can be arrested for doing it overseas. Yeah. So there's this whole effort to identify that as well. Yeah, actually, I recently saw, um, I think it was on YouTube, 
but basically what they were doing was um it was some production where they would work with uh like a local law enforcement agency i think this one was in like the philippines or malaysia somewhere in southeast asia and what they were doing is they had like a film crew with an undercover you know police unit and um there were several american men um who had traveled there for that reason and you know they documented the whole thing and after they were arrested in the in that country they were then extradited to the United States and face federal charges. So, uh, yeah. And, yeah, and you know that's a great effort, and that. But I mean, that's just scratching the surface. For every one of those people that are caught, there's thousands that get away with it. Yeah. It's a whole industry. I mean, sex tourism, global sex tourism, is a whole industry, and you know, and and, and in particular um, for thing for underage girls and and boys. That, that there's all these sick people that that's what they're into, and they know they can. They travel to certain countries where that the laws really not enforced, and there's no availability of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one one thing I am glad about is that people are becoming more aware of this crime, and um, and you mentioned, you know, you some of the the measures to counter it would be to, you know, at airports and hotels. I used to work in hotels for a number of years, and. Um, and we used to see, sometimes we would see scenarios where we would wonder, like, what is, you know, what's going on here? Uh, something looks suspicious about this. And um, I, I know there are organizations that offer training to hotels and, and hotels can get certified in uh, being able to recognize some of these signs. And uh, a, a friend of mine who, who works in this countering uh, trafficking world one of the things he talks about constantly is, you know, a way that we can s- stop this and counter it is by, you know, the community coming together and, and making sure, you know, if something looks out of place, you know, we, we as a community, we try and deal with it. Uh, and I think that would help. Um, so I, I'd like to talk to you briefly, um, if you don't mind, uh you know, about the school shooting that recently happened uh, yeah. in, te- in Texas. Um, you know, it, when these type of events happen, it always triggers, uh, you know, debates about gun control. Um, in in Florida, and, and, and this is a solution that many conservatives have, and, and it's one that I agree with, that schools should be hardened. Uh, wh- what do you think about that? Well, I, I agree with it. I think there's a number of factors to look at. First of all, I think we have to establish what is the goal, right? The goal is to keep these things from happening. That's the goal here. Right. I think there are people who have a different goal, and the different goal they have is to they've got they have pre-existing beliefs about what our gun laws should be, and they view these instances as opportunities to pursue that agenda. But it, but the proposals they have are completely unrelated to the prevention of these attacks. And so the question is, how do you prevent these things from happening? And I think at the core of it is we have to all the, what, what do these shootings all have in common? They have two things. They have various things in common. First, there's a disturbed individual who doesn't just snap from one moment to the next. These are never stories of someone who everything is fine. They're just living a normal life and 
everything's going well. And then just to wake up one morning and snap and go somewhere and shoot up a school and commit these atrocities. That's never the case. If you look at it, the case is generally the case of a young man who over a substantial period of time has had interactions with law enforcement, has had uh, signs and indications that they're increasingly uh, moving in in a bad direction, who have a fascination with firearms, who are making threats, who have made threats in the past. It's always a pattern that starts to develop over some period of time. So that's one thing that they have in common. The second thing they have in common is that they then walk into a licensed gun retailer, you know, a gun store, and they pass a background check and they buy a gun. And and then the third thing that happens is eventually, not the same day they bought it, usually not a couple of days after, but generally at some point, they take the next step and commit this atrocity. So what is the answer to that? Well, the answer to that first and foremost is we've got to help identify who these people might be um, before they act. And we have a way to do that. And I have a bill that I've been offering to, since 2017 to do that. And it's now called the Eagles Act. It's been called the TAPS Act. But it basically takes the National Threat Assessment Center, which is what the Secret Service created to protect the president. Right. They, when a president's going to fly into Miami, they know everybody or they've tracked everybody in Miami who fits the profile of someone who could take a shot at the president. And I, and I guarantee you they know where those people are on the day the president's in town. Well, that same model, that same system should be available for local communities where information from the school board, the sheriff's office, the police department, counselors, you know, healthcare professionals are all being fed into the system. So you can begin to identify people that could potentially, you know, at some point take that next step. That's the first point. The second thing we have in Florida, which I think would be effective, is uh, the uh, red flag law. Right now, if, if in many states in this country, If I go to the police and I say, look, my 19-year-old son has gone off the rails. He's talking about guns a lot. He's talking about hurting people. He's been hurting. I think he's up to something. There's nothing you can do about it until he does something. Nothing. Even if you believe with all your heart that someone's going to get up the next morning and go shoot up a school, in most states, no process exists for taking away that person's guns until after they've done something. And, 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 and the something may be kill themselves, right? And a lot of these cases that these people are, uh, could, might kill themselves too. So that's who you're trying to protect. What a red flag law allows you to do is it allows you to go to court. Per, not you. You have to do law enforcement. Some police department has to go to court, present evidence to a judge, and get a preliminary injunction, almost like a, like a restraining order, that allow them not just to take away the guns that they have, but to prevent them from buying new ones. And then you, got, you, can go, you have to go back to court with a higher burden of proof and prove that this person, this injunction needs to be longer than a week. It needs to be six months, you know, it's in order to, to, to really get this person the help they need. And that person, of course, has the opportunity to offer counter evidence and argue against it. And, and um, so there's due process involved. It is very similar to the way you would get a restraining order. Those two things in combination, along with the third thing, and it's something we tried to do this week and Senator Schumer blocked it, and that is there's this website called safeschools.gov that was created under Trump that I was a big part of pushing for. And it's a clearinghouse of all the best, latest information on the best practices for hardening schools. The what stuff works, what stuff doesn't work, what other places are doing that's worked really well. It becomes a resource for school districts to look at and say, OK, these are the things that work. Uh, in, in helping schools, and it's constantly being updated. And we're trying to make that a permanent thing, and it's being blocked by Schumer because there's some people on the far left who say, well, we don't want to harden schools because that means there's going to be police officers on the campus, and that's going to yeah. be triggering to a lot of students and so forth. 
these three things would be very effective in my mind at getting something done. And I, and, and I don't know why anybody would be opposed to any of those three things. And they could actually help prevent some of these things. Some of these other proposals that are out there would do nothing. I hear, you know, the first thing they talk about, universal background check. If you want to be for universal background checks, that you have a right to be for that. You can have that debate. But that wouldn't prevent these people are passing. They, they, these people are not buying this guns from guns shows they're, they're buying them from stores because they pa- pass background checks this guy went in on his 18th birthday and bought two guns right and then there's this whole notion of assault weapons well there's the, there is no that you have to define what something is if you're going to ban something you have to define what it is okay and the definition of assault weapon are, is all based on cosmetic things so right if you banned an assault weapon as they've defined it in the law and is the only way you can define it in the law all it would mean is that in, you instead of buying a gun that looks like a military weapon, you're going to have to buy one that doesn't look like a military weapon, but but is just as deadly as the thing you banned, right? So if the AR-15 is banned, a the manufacturer could just change the name, but b they um they would they would still be able to buy a gun that looks different, looks less scary, but is just as lethal, just as dangerous, just as deadly. So that's just not an approach that works. Um, and if, if the goal here is to prevent these things from happening, then we need to do things that actually would prevent them. Yeah, I think a lot of the folks who are um, who talk about gun control and, and things like that, I think they aren't familiar with guns and and things like that. And I also think um, there's a cultural difference in um, you know places like where I'm from in New York, where the only time we hear or see anything about guns is when it's used in a crime or when it's used, uh, you know, by law enforcement uh, against somebody committing a crime or or maybe even in a situation where uh, they shouldn't have used a gun, right? But uh, the only time we hear about guns is in when it's used uh, for something negative versus, um, you know, in the South or different uh, states where the, it, there's a culture of guns uh, you know, guns are a normal thing. It's used for hunting or, or for protecting yourself and your family. So uh, I think there's a divide there due to culture issues. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I was I, I read this article last night um, where they were criticizing you for criticizing the NBA for, you know, their stance on it. But. Uh, what you said about the NBA, and, and I thought this was a valid thing to say, was, uh, you know, they'll criticize uh, gun laws in America, but they're completely silent on uh, what's going on with the Uyghurs in China. Um, yeah. So the the thing about it is that they they held a moment of silence at the Miami Heat game on on Wednesday night, which I think is fully appropriate. And then they took after the moment of silence, right? So you're about to have this moment of silence. Then they say, you know, call your senators from Florida and, and tell them to support, you know, and demand that they that they do something about this and so forth. So my issue with it is, okay, that now now you've gone you've gone from the moment of silence because we all know everybody here thinks what happened there is horrible. Listen, I've got kids that are still in school. I've you know, I've got family members who've got their kids in school. I know but who, who's for this stuff. Who's not heartbroken by this? Who wouldn't want to do something to stop right. it? Okay? But, that's a, but the, the natural inclination is to try to politicize this thing. So if the NBA wants to play politics, right? So now that they take the next step, now they want to politicize this by basically implying to people that, you know, there's these things that we could do. And if we did them, would stop it. 
this, there are things that, that there are some easy common sense laws that we can pass that would have prevented what happened from happening. But these guys won't pass those laws. Call them and demand that they do it. That's a lie. That's a blatant, flat out lie. The, the laws that they're talking about supporting would not have prevented this or any of the other shootings. Yeah. None. And um, and and that's what the, the, I'm in favor of things that actually could have prevented something like this from happening had they been appropriately used. And they're the ones blocking that. So my whole point is, all right, if you want to you have a right, if the NBA wants to become engaged in politics, they most certainly have a right to do that in America. But then we're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about how you make billions of dollars uh, in a deal that you have with China that takes Uyghur Muslims, puts them in concentration camps, forces them to work like slaves and harvests their organs and sells them in the organ market. That's an outrage. And they make money of that. Yeah. You know, now they're taking their game to a country. They're going to be playing a game next year in a country where homosexuality is punishable by death. And yet they're here boycotting the all-star game in Charlotte a few years ago because of a law in North Carolina they didn't like. The Miami Heat runs a commercial that basically implies that Florida's voting laws are racist. Um, there are no voting laws in China because there are no elections in China. So my whole point, if you're going to play politics and you're going to be a moral crusader, you have a right to do that. But if there's hypocrisy in it, we're going to embed it. We're going to talk about it. And, and it's not that the NBA is just in business deals with China. They have cracked down on people that speak out about it. Yes. They, I remember a few years ago, people being removed from arenas because they had T-shirts on and held up signs about Hong Kong. And they were physically being removed from the arenas at the games. Removed because they didn't want that symbol there. You know, we, we, uh, so, so these things continue to happen. And so you know, it is what it is. And I think these things need to be called out for what they are. Because ultimately, I hope we've reached a point now where we, we can, there are things that can be passed that could actually help make a difference. And, uh, and those are the things I hope we'll focus on. But the reason why we don't is because there are people out there that believe that if they can convince people that certain people in politics have blood on their hands because they refuse to do anything about this, if they can convince people of that, it might help them in the elections. And it's sick. That's why none of this stuff ever gets solved. Yeah, I, I, well, I think it's a, it's a fair point to bring up, um, you know, about the NBA. And I was reading the article and they were trying to make it seem like you saying that was such a bizarre thing. And, um, you know, I've interviewed several Uyghurs um, and done some other events to try to bring awareness to their situation. And, uh, I mean, essentially, it's, it's uh, by many uh, counts, it's a genocide what's happening to them. Um, so, it, it, you know, I just thought it was it was a strange take on, on these articles to try and make you look like you're crazy for saying that. Um, and then even with the shooting in, in Texas, uh, it's it's now coming out that he was outside the school for 12 minutes firing shots and uh, no one thought to lock the front door. Um, you know, I don't want to criticize law enforcement until all the, the details come out, but, you know, apparently... He was outside for 12 minutes, and, and I think if uh, something was done differently there, that would have definitely saved lives. Um, yeah, look, I, I don't I think we, uh, I think don't want to comment too much about this individual the circumstances yet because I think we're still learning things, right? We're still learning things, and we're going to continue to learn things. But I can comment now pretty extensively about what happened in Parkland in 2018 because we now know a lot of it, and it's gone to Senate. Now all that evidence is in the public domain and so forth. When Parkland happened here in Florida— Literally, I heard this over and over again from parents there. Everybody knew who it was before they had even heard the name. They already knew who it had been. 
because they knew this guy. This guy had had a repeated this this you know, killer in Parkland had had repeated um, interactions with law enforcement repeatedly. He had made threats in school. Uh, he had, you know, law enforcement had been to his house multiple times. There had been calls to the FBI hotline about him. So there were a bunch of flashing red lights about this person and nothing happened. And one of the reasons why nothing happened is because the superintendent of Broward schools at the time was, had subscribed to this thing that came out of Chicago that the Obama administration was very supportive of that basically said, we do not want to criminalize kids in school. I don't care if they're violent. I don't care if what they're doing is very dangerous. We don't want schools. We don't want kids being arrested in school. We don't want cops mulling around schools, you know, going after kids that might be dangerous or are doing dangerous things, you know. And so the guy got away with it. They just kept sort of letting him move on and move on, and nobody addressed it until it finally got to the breaking point. And so we, that mentality still exists in a lot of places. And, 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 and I don't know all the details of this, but we already know some things about this guy. Look, there's a disturbed person who was posting stuff on Instagram, you know, who the police had already been to his house previously on some other issues. There were already warning signs there. Now, would a red flag law have stopped it? Well, you know, I don't know. No one can tell you that for sure in any particular case, because that requires somebody taking proactive action. But I can tell you of all the proposals that are out there, the two that would have the most impact is a threat assessment process combined with a legal process with due process that allows you to go and actually keep these people from taking action before they do it. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I think uh, that threat assessment that you spoke about, um, I, I think that would be amazing. Uh, you know, and, and I think people, uh, I think you mentioned this uh, a few minutes ago, people talk about how, you know, having police officers or, or, you know, physically hardening the school would would trigger kids. And, uh, you know, I, I was in high school in the uh, in the mid 2000s in New York and we had metal detectors. We had extra security at schools because there were things happening. You know, uh, there was gang violence and, you know, all, all kind of things were happening. Uh, and. And they essentially hardened the school, and and that's the reality that we lived with. And I really don't see that as an issue. Um, and you know, we uh, our politicians are protected by guns, uh, banks, uh, you know, all these important institutions are protected. And and I think schools should be added to that that list of things that we protect in America. Yeah, I mean, Nancy Pelosi was making members of the House walk through a metal detector. Members of Congress had to pass a metal detector on the way into the House chamber to vote. Right. So just think about that. And um, I think all of these things are important. You know, I, I, I understand in some cases people will say, look, there was an officer there and it didn't stop him because he had body armor. They weren't in the right place at the right time. But but there are cases. There are dozens of cases around the country uh, where there were potential school shootings or attempted school shootings where a you know resource officer at the, did stop it. Right. Or did keep it from escalating. And, and look, I, I think we can't forget in the midst of the gun violence debate, the mass shootings are tragic and heartbreaking and horrifying. Okay, But we have shootings in this country every day, every day, by, you know, random acts of criminality. Uh, and I say random acts. Some of them are targeted acts of criminality. Uh, you know, we're, we read about it every day. They're one off, you know, two people shot, three people shot, one person shot. A lot of times these are interpersonal disputes. 
And these are people that are buying guns right off the street, stolen guns, you know, guns that, that, that they're not buying them from a gun show or a gun collector. They're buying them from the black market of gun sales on the street that is going on and things of that nature, too. And I think here's the one thing we have to understand. We've had guns in America since 1776. We've had the Second Amendment since the very beginning. This country has always been a country that has had more guns available than anywhere else because of the Second Amendment. But we've only started to see these things that we're seeing now in the last 20 years, right? That's when you really begin to see an uptick. I think that begs the question. The guns have been here the whole time. The shootings have only been here at this level for the last 20 years. What's happened over the last 20 years? We're the same country with the same availability of guns, but suddenly now you have them being used in this way. What, what's happened? Something's happened in society. Something's happened in the culture that needs to be examined and needs to be talked about. That's part of this situation as well. Again, everybody wants to think or hope that there's some law that you can pass, some magic step we can take, one thing that would end all of it. This is a nuanced and difficult topic that's going to require multiple things to be done and sustained over a period of time. And I think one of those things has to be understanding what it is that's creating this dynamic. And we've there's been some work done on this already, and that's why you're able to have threat assessments. We, we also know, for example, that the, I'm not saying the media can ignore these shootings, but they can't. But at the same time, the media coverage given to this, you know, the attention the killer and it gets and so forth, we believe is... is we, I say we, a lot of the literature and expertise on this believes is a contributing factor. As I speak to you right now, there is someone, a disturbed person somewhere in America watching all this that could be inspired to action on the basis of all the attention this killer is getting. That's why to this day, I always personally refuse to say the name of any of these killers. Um, it doesn't mean the public doesn't have a right to know who it is, but I refuse to say their names because I think the notoriety is one of the things that most of them are hoping to get out of this. Yeah, yeah, I think that's accurate. I think uh, several of them openly state that, you know, that they uh, they want to be famous and, and things like that. Um, and when I, I will say, uh, you know, maybe they'll look at this in Texas since this just happened, but, uh, you know, in addition to what you outlined about, uh, you know, figuring out who the potential threats are, is um you know maybe putting more resources into mental uh health for you know potential um people who fit the profile who might commit a school shooting or or something of that nature um and and i and i think you know the fact that we've always had guns and but these shootings have spiked in the last 20 or so years uh you know maybe we need to have some more conversations about mental health and 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 you know, what creates the environment where a kid decides to go into a school and kill kids. And and also what you mentioned that, you know, there are instances where school safety officers or even teachers have prevented school shootings. And, and I think they don't get enough attention uh, in those scenarios. Yeah. And and again, look, I, and on the mental health front, I agree. I think we have a mental health problem in this country. Understand that most of these cases that we talk about mental health, depression, um, you know, uh, all the things that develop are these the these shooters don't suffer from any of those sort of what we would view as the classical mental health conditions, nor are most of the people with mental health a, a threat to others. In fact, that to, to the extent that, that that there is a direct linkage between violence and, and the most common mental health conditions, the link is actually towards suicide and harming themselves. And that's mm. a big component here, too. Right. We want to identify and prevent that from happening. 
Right. I think what we have here is a very, again, I'm, I'm speaking outside of my area of expertise. I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have read a lot about this and tried to inform myself on the latest information on it. And generally what you find in these cases is a man, usually a young man, who feels aggrieved by society, by the culture, by individuals. They're bullied. They have a political ideology that makes them feel like victims and, and targets of some sort of unfairness who seek to do something empowering, something that makes them, puts them in a position of power after feeling like they've been in a position of being exploited and, and not in power. Um, you know, obviously that, that, that is, I don't know if you call it mental health or what you call it, but that is certainly something that, that is a psychological uh, viewpoint that seems to be the pattern that fits all of these. Now, what they're aggrieved by can change. In the case of Buffalo, this guy is aggrieved by the notion that, um, you know, people like him are, are being replaced by people of a new ethnicity and different race and so forth. In, in the case of the, the guy in, in Parkland and, and the shooter now, we'll learn more. But generally, we know that these are people who felt like they, they were being um, ostracized and not treated well by those around them. And going all the way back to Colorado, we see a lot of that linkage. So then you have that. We know that that's a factor. And I think those are things that can be identified early on as a risk factor for everything from suicide to school shooting to a bunch of stuff in between. And just being able to identify people that are exhibiting signs of this and beginning to monitor it and intervening is a big deal. I will say that I do think we have to reach a point where people out there who are doing these sorts of things ahead of time, when they try to go buy a gun, it's, it raises the alarm. Right. If, if you if you know that this guy is a troubled person and then all of a sudden it pops up on the system, hey, by the way, you tried to buy two guns today. That should be a rinking, blinking red light of, you know, OK, th this is now headed in a very bad direction. And we don't have that right now. People talk about background checks, background checks right now. All they check for is, are you have you committed a crime in the past? Well, may, most of these cases, the answer is no, they haven't. That's why they'll keep passing background checks now. How? Uh, what we need to understand is what it, what you're checking, and and we got to check the right things. Yeah, I agree, and uh, you know that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, uh, and and you know, like I mentioned earlier, there's there's just a disconnect I feel with the uh, the folks who you know think that that you know universal background checks is the answer. Um, when it's really more complicated than that. And I, you know, as you outlined, we have the capability to, to put these systems in place and, and uh, slow this down or, or prevent it altogether. Um, so I, I think it's important. And I'm glad you mentioned that because this is actually the first time that I've heard about the, uh, you know, the, the system that the Secret Service uses that could be used locally. Um, so I, I think that's pretty important. Um, so, you know, I know you're you're pretty busy and, and I appreciate, uh, you know, you taking out the time to come and uh, talk to me today. No, I enjoy this opportunity to do this. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. What happened in the mountains of Afghanistan 10 years ago was remembered vividly today. We were all fighting our hardest. Retired Staff Sergeant Ronald Schur II was a medic then when suddenly the enemy opened fire on U.S. Special Forces, wounding several. Hey, I'm ahead. I think I'm ahead. During the six-hour firefight, Schur not only treated his teammates' life-threatening injuries, he was a human shield. There was rocks falling on them. There was, they'd already been wounded. They, they were very exposed to the elements. Like, 
course I was going to cover them as best I could. One bullet ricocheted off his helmet, another grazed his arm. It sure saved many lives, including retired Sergeant First Class Dylan Bear. Basically said a prayer and I thought that I was going to die and I accepted that. And Ron Schur slapped me across the face and said, wake up, you're not going to die today. Just sheer courage under fire, poise, his medical skill and acumen, um, they're without equal. It's why today Schur received the Medal of Honor. Recognition for what he did during one battle as he now fights another. He was diagnosed with lung cancer. They're the same in a lot of ways. Both are just kind of very focused life. But if anyone knows how to face such a challenge, it's the man now receiving the military's highest honor.